Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. This is an exciting conversation I've been dying to have for a while, and I simply could not contain my excitement to share it. I won't waste any time. You saw the title. This conversation is about my chemical romance and queer stuff. My guest of honor for this episode is Mem Paul, aka Homo Rodeo slash Michael Carson, Mem is a Brooklyn-based singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist who has toured in a variety of bands since his late teens. If you're at all immersed in the local punk and freak folk fringes in Brooklyn, then you might know Mem as the bassist of Jeffrey Lewis and the Voltage, or as the drummer of TVOD. Mem and I first met at a TVOD gig a few months ago, and one of the first things we bonded over was our militant preteen devotion to the band My Chemical Romance. As most of you listening might already know, I've always adored My Chemical Romance, and I also really love investigating queer motifs in the music I consume, which My Chemical Romance is just a treasure trove of. As a transmasculine queer musician, Mem is no stranger to these themes either. The main thread in our discussion is how My Chemical Romance has been the catalyst for both of our journeys of self-discovery, living in small towns, and growing up and coming out. And we also use MCR as a launchpad to broaden our discussion into a variety of other topics on the personal and political scale, Topics like how being trans might affect a person's daily life as a touring musician, and the double-edged sword of queer visibility permeating popular culture. You might also hear some faint meowing in the background of our conversation, which is coming from Mem's adorable tabby Mika, which was so sweet and adorable. As usual, I would like to remind listeners that I am paying for the podcast out of pocket, So if you would like to help me continue to create more episodes and maybe buy me a coffee as well, please consider donating to or checking out my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Those who join my Patreon will get to unlock bonus content, including music-based film reviews with special guests unheard and unedited conversations in podcast episodes, playlists curated by yours truly, as well as early access to some of my YouTube content. However, I understand that finances are tight for many people, so if you are unable to join the Patreon, I fully understand. All I ask is that you give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as that really helps me out in my effort to get the podcast in front of more people. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Okay, 
So cool. I am back with a guest. Hi, guest. Hello. Would you like to I'm introduce yourself? <laughs> I'm Mem Paul, aka Michael Carson, aka the drummer of TVOD and the bassist of Jeffrey Lewis, um, aka Homo Rodeo, uh, amongst other things that I find myself involved in um, here in my apartment, using my workbench as a desk for this microphone. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> well, welcome. And I'm actually really excited. This is the first IRL chat that I've done nice. for this show. So, cool. um, yeah. How long have you been playing? I never asked you before. Um, oh God. Music has been like a whole life thing. Like I started playing piano at the age of four or five. Um, I don't have any musicians in my family. I just was very drawn to it, had a piano in my family house and started picking out melodies by ear when I was like four or five. I went to SUNY Purchase at the Music Conservatory for a year to study studio composition. Um, music school is often bullshit, so I dropped out and have been playing in bands in New York for the past um, nine years, trying to keep track of all the fucking bands that I play in, but that's kind of the the gist of the long-running serious commitment projects. Yeah. What have you learned over your nine years of playing? Oh my god, that's a huge question. <laughs> um, I feel like we're in therapy right now. I'm that's fine. Like, I had what? therapy already today, so I'm, we're just keeping the ball rolling. Um, I mean, I've learned so many things from so many different people, from so many different angles. Like, I've done everything from you know, staged readings of new musicals to total trash gutter punk shows to opening for really big bands to playing really big festivals. But ultimately, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that there's a lot of bullshit around music, especially when you start doing it professionally. Uh, it's all stupid bullshit and the game is dumb. And I've seen some of the best bands I've ever heard play to five people in a bar in fucking mm -hmm. Tulsa. And it's just because not everybody wants to play the game and that's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. And how did you initially join TVOD? So I knew I was friends with Jason. I helped Jason move from DC into his apartment in Bushwick and at the time, that place was throwing shows. TVOD played a show there. This was before Jason was playing with them. Um, but I actually, I actually was invited to a TVOD show and just, the, it was really the live show just totally blew me away. Just the energy and the, the type of crowd work that Tyler does and the way that the whole group just comes together into this sort of debaucherous, chaotic, thing and in the midst of it it's not just a huge party it's like there's really catchy ass songs and great melodies and cool guitar lines and the synth element and just it all weaves into this very very fun cool experience and after seeing tvod play a couple times i just i just wanted to be a part of that energy so badly it, it just it represented everything to me that coming out of covid was so good about music it, during that summer, people were just so excited and so thrilled. And just, there was so much energy in this just wave of momentum of people wanting to go out 
and party and go hard and have a good time and forget about all of the collective trauma that we just experienced and just do something fun and stupid and wholesome and good and inclusive. And it's been really, really cool for me to tour as a drummer. It's because it is so physical and it is such a high energy band. Um, it's very overwhelming. It's very all encompassing. I feel like I get up there and I'm like fighting for my life for 30 minutes, you know, and I love that. I love that feeling. It's great. Yeah. And Jeffrey Lewis too, because that's like a legendary veteran of the anti-folk sphere. So what, how, how did you initially get on that train? That was, I had no idea who Jeffrey Lewis was until I auditioned for him. And a month or two later, I was on my first tour ever in Europe, age 20, (laughs) um, as a working musician. And, um, it's, it totally shattered my, my world. And it's what I'd always wanted to do. I always knew I got to a certain point in my interest in music sort of as a teenager that I kind of realized, which there was no model for this around me at all. Because again, my, I don't have any musicians in my family. Don't really have any artists in my family. I grew up in a small town. That's pretty out there. Like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm from Southern Oregon, from Medford, Oregon. And there's, you know, Portland's like a four hour drive North. San Francisco's like seven hour drive South. And that's just like this expanse of agricultural, beautiful land, but not a lot going on there. Um, so the whole idea of touring musicians and bands coming through and interacting with that scene didn't really, wasn't something I had a lot of exposure to, but at a certain point I sort of did the math and realized that it is possible to not be famous and still make a living playing music, figuring out how to do it and make a living doing it. That's what I've been able to do for the past eight years. I'm very grateful for that. It's also, you know, touring as a queer person, as a trans person, it is very, it allows a sense of safety in that Mm. same regard in that, you know, when we get to Kansas city or Tulsa or Nashville or wherever that we're going to be at a venue. That's a music venue that people who like live music go to experience music at probably they are, not the most horrible bigots in that city. Um, and probably that bar is not run by the worst people in that city. Um, and probably they have met a queer person in their lifetime. Yeah. You know, whereas if you go to a random bar to random city for no reason, that's not always the case. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't know what you could walk into in those situations, but, Mm. um, there is this cushion that probably, there won't be Nazis at the Jeffrey Lewis show. (laughs) I would hope not. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I guess that's like a good segue into what we're talking to. So um, I guess if I could just get an idea of what you were listening to as a kid, like what were you primarily, because you grew up in Oregon, Mm -hmm. is that what you said? Yeah. So in Oregon as a kid, what were you consuming music wise? My parents do even though they're not musically inclined they both do love music in their own way my mom was really into movie soundtracks you know there was a lot of there was a lot of country there like my first show ever was shania twain went to a shania twain concert when i was probably seven or eight 
And then when it came around to, and I've been thinking about this a lot in relation to my Kapoor romance and in regards to my musical journey, because that was not the first band that was a band that I decided that this was music that I liked, but it was towards the start of that journey, right? Um, I, I think that the sort of mind-breaking point was when I got introduced to Green Day, right after American Idiot had come out. And it was just so angsty in this wonderful prepubescent way that totally connected with me. And I was like, yeah, fuck America. America sucks. Like <laughs> just something about that whole demeanor and that whole message. Um, just, I think flipped a switch in my brain. And even though now I know that that's not punk, um, it made me, gravitate towards anything that I could get my hands on that might be considered punk. Before that, honestly, the Avril Lavigne thing was really big for me. Yeah. She was huge. I had the, um, the jewel case CD for, um, uh, let go under my skin, under my skin. Yeah. And she's got the, she's got just the, uh, the fucking eyeliner just smeared <laughs> mm-hmm. all over her face. She's got the dead straight hair and she's wearing that frilly skirt. She's got like, just there's X's on her sleeve. Why? Yeah. Nobody knows. But it was just so cool. And so I just, that just totally resonated with me. So when did you initially discover MCR? Um, I actually have a very specific and distinct memory of it, which which is great because for the purposes of being interviewed about it, it gives me something to talk about. Um, I, I went to a sixth grade through 12th grade Catholic school. So while most kids moved to middle school in seventh grade, I moved schools at the beginning of sixth grade. The year is 2006. Um, it's all a bunch of new people for the most part. I maybe knew one or two other kids from the elementary school that I went to. And at this point, I was super into Green Day, finding music through that avenue. And this girl was wearing a shirt that said the Black Parade. And I sort of knew that she was into cool music, as I would have defined it at the time. And I asked her, what's the Black Parade? And she goes, this is the album that we've been waiting for. Like, like this collective we, and I was just like, wow. Like, I was like, I don't know who we is, but I want to be a part of it. That's awesome. And... Before you continue, can I just say, that sounds so apt, though. Like, there's just, (laughs) like, the level of, like... uh, high drama of some this, like, 12 year old girl some 12 year like, olds yeah and this was right before black parade came out <laughs> so she told me about it turned me on to it and i must have at the time i was really the way one of the ways that i would check out music is you would go to itunes and you would play you could you could play 30 seconds of a song to get a little preview. I remember it. it well. And that was how I found a lot of music. 
Um, so maybe there were some singles out at that point. I don't know. But when the album came out, definitely was into it. I never had a physical copy of it, so it must have been an iTunes thing. Um, but yeah, that was my introduction to it. And it was very much during that era. I didn't discover them during the Three Cheers era. It was just like Black Parade was my starting point, And then I went back into their catalog and found the rest of their albums and went through all of that. And um, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out how old I was, but I did see them live at a certain point. Um, it was at the end of the Black Parade tour, they tagged on some more tour dates without the whole um, theater of the, the Black Parade tour had provided for the rest of the tour, like the whole coming out on the gurney and all that stuff. So it wasn't the big costumed show. It was just them playing their fucking songs. Um, and that show was insane. I just, it was definitely the biggest, craziest show I'd ever been to. Me, my mom drove me and a friend, not the same friend that introduced me to them. She, I wasn't super close with her, but I ended up being friends with another girl who was also really into MCR. And she was kind of the one that kind of like guided me through that journey and like showed me the older albums and all that stuff. Um, and we got to go up and see them play at the crystal ballroom in Portland, Oregon. And, um, we waited in line for hours to get in, showed up super early. And it was Gerard Way's birthday, actually. And I mean, it was just the craziest situation I've ever been in at that point in my life. You know, I was maybe 12 or 13. My mom was somewhere. There's a balcony in that room. So she was somewhere up there. Me and my friend are down here getting crushed by all these people. Like it was absolutely electric. And uh, just remember unconscious people getting crowd surfed to the front to get taken away by medics. And it, it was, wow. just, it was just insane. It was totally insane. And every second of it was fucking fantastic. Like I like found an empty water bottle and I like put a cap on it so I could like keep a bottle of the air from that <laughs> show. Like that is how much it meant to mm-hmm. me. Like it, it was fucking everything. And That was the first time I was, like, just in a fucking pit of sweaty bodies, all screaming along to lyrics. Just me and my friend, and we're holding hands and trying not to lose each other in the crowd. And, um, yeah, it was just mind-shatteringly cool and exciting and charged. I love that. Yeah. I feel like everyone seems to have, like, a super vivid memory of, like, this is where I was when I discovered them. Right, right. This is what I saw. But I just always, I just always knew. I just absorbed everything they did through osmosis because they were freaking everywhere Mm -hmm. when I was approaching the age of 10. So, Mm -hmm. my, I know my cousin had a MySpace account at the time, so she she obviously listened to them a lot. And... I, um, I remember being obsessed with the Black Parade, um, when I was in middle school. Yeah. And, um, so that was my gateway into the back catalog. So I listened to Bullets and Three Cheers after that and, Mm -hmm. um, sort of fell off after five years. 
by the time I got, was approached my sophomore year of high school, I guess, was when I fell off. But mm-hmm. I had been broken up enough over the breakup, and I was just like, okay, it's time. It's time to move on. Yeah, it's been yeah. It's been four years. And so, um, yeah, I w- but I, I had never gotten to see them live. So I remember the day that they were playing the day before 9-11. It was September 10th mm-hmm. of this year. I was yeah. like, fuck it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pay $300 for this pit wow, ticket. I'm gonna yeah. let Ticketmaster scam me out of all my money off for Gerard way. I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. Only for Gerard. But yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was a really transcendental experience because yeah. I was just like, okay, yeah. Um, and I had questioned, do, like, do I really want to fucking relive, relive my adolescence? Do I really want to go rehash all these memories and right. the minute that I arrived and they arrived on stage, I was like, oh yeah. no, you're going to remember. Yeah. And yeah. yeah so it, that That's was, awesome. that was, that was a day. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah. I, like I had a lot of friends that went to those shows, um, which is sort of funny how that, how it's come back around like that. Right. I also, you know, I feel like I felt obligated to like outgrow that band kind of as I got to my early teenage years. And then in my late teenage years, I did go back and re-listen to those albums. I also, the, um, whatever the, the last album, the danger, whatever, I don't even know what it's called. Never was into that. As soon as that, as soon as that dropped, I was like, this is some pop bullshit. And I don't, and I was in a very anti-pop phase of my life. I was getting into really weird, heavier stuff. Um, then I got to, is it called Danger Days? Is that the name of the album? Danger Days, yeah. Yeah, okay. The last one, cool. yeah. Um, I, like, got to that one, and I listened to the first two songs, and I was like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm sad, I'm done. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I went back, and, and it's just, like, I feel like, you know, like, preteen brain just works this way, where stuff that is, like, when I first found them, I love Black Parade, I liked Three Cheers, and Bullets didn't really hit me in the right place. Like, it mm. just, it just, I, I couldn't get into it. And now, it's like, when I listened back to it when I was, you know, maybe like 18, I was like, oh, Bullets is actually fucking awesome. As someone that was getting into heavier, um, more complex, more sophisticated. yeah. For rock sure. styles of music like i was listening to the chord progressions and i was listening to the dynamic range and i was listening to the structures of of the songs themselves and and was really impressed with how um how sophisticated everything was you know i didn't expect to go back and listen to a band that i liked when i was 11 and hear that much sophistication you know and now i would say three cheers is, is my favorite album of theirs black parade loses me a little bit on like the the over the top drama and like the yeah real can- the real levels theater of camp. Core. yes theater yeah. Core. yeah um <laughs> but it's still it's all just like compositionally it's great yeah. also the i know there was a different drummer halfway through their career but the drummer on those first two albums is fucking fantastic like yeah. the drums on bullets are like so sick just absolute mastery of that particular vibe and that sound where it's like 
fast enough to be punk drums, but it's complex enough to be that sort of um, hardcore, that sort of like post-hardcore influenced, prog influenced, just awesome shit going on there. Absolutely, yeah. Another thing that's just, that I found really interesting about just their run in general is the fact that the catalyst for them forming was 9-11. So when that first building went, like it was like a, it was like an A-bomb went off of like just this emotion. And it was like, it made you nauseous. A big thing that went through my head was, you know, everything's kind of pointless that you're doing right now. It was really disheartening. I need to do something that actually means something or, or my life's going to mean nothing. And uh, it doesn't mean like go out there and save the world because you can't, obviously. But it means, you know, go out there and make some kind of difference or say something that has some kind of value to it. Um, connect with another human being. And I could write a whole thesis, I could write a whole dissertation on the cultural touchstones and art that we yeah. wouldn't have without 9-11. We wouldn't have this band. We wouldn't mm-hmm. have Twilight. Like, Yeah, which is interesting because those, yeah. I I was thinking about that today and like the link between MCR and Twilight. And because when I, <laughs> when I was a little fucking emo bitch, um, I went, I was like, there are all these like web forums, right? There was some forum that was like vampires.com where it's just like it was so stupid it was like a bunch of people just being like i'm a vampire so i'm being like you're a vampire wow and then it was cool like vampires were cool for a second Mm -hmm. and then twilight happened and then vampires were not cool anymore because yeah that was some silly shit also i don't know the kind of the uneasiness i have with it is stephanie meyer's mormonism just coming out of these really weird and icky metaphors and also like how do you de-gayify vampires? <laughs> like, what's that clip of Norm Macdonald, like, when he's talking about interview with a vampire? He's like, here's my review. Uh, not gay enough. <laughs> and also, yeah, it's just weird. It's basically just someone just wrote weird erotic fan fiction about what a vampire might be like. Mm-hmm. And it just took the world by storm. And they also happen to be Mormon. Yes. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, never never really got into that whole yeah. scene. Anyway, back to 9-11. Yes, um, <laughs> back to 9-11. Never forget the what, question about 9-11. But you know what was, was interesting about post-9-11 culture was that the value of masculinity was measured by warfare. Yeah, and patriotism. And, and patriotism. Like, I'm a strong American and I'm going to put a boot in that terrorist ass. And yeah. I think that sort of harkens back to, I, I mean... You know, I grew up in such a small, weird place. And I, lo- I love examining these things. Don't get me wrong. I'm totally right. happy to get into it. But with music, with bands I've loved, even at the preteen level of obsession that I had with Green Day, MCR, whatever, Panic of Disco, this stuff that meant the world to me, I never have been into the, the context and the trivia. I never have known the names of the people in the band. I never have known the history of how they got together. I, I didn't, I did not know the MCR started because of 9-11 until very recently. That was not something that was on my radar because I have always, again, I was saying earlier about the music scene, I am just, I just get really into the music itself. Yeah. And everything around it just is background noise to me. Mm -hmm. And that's not a great way to be because there's so many, there's so much art that is very contextual. Yeah. And I feel like I miss out on the appreciation of a lot of things because I just 
totally bypass the metadata on a lot of these things, but um, it's it's cool talking about this stuff because I just my there was so much like reading your notes. There was so many things that I this is the first time I ever heard about it, and I was totally obsessed with this band. But just something about the way that I approached it, I just missed so much of the information around it. And went straight to the music. Um, but that being said, I think that that's sort of what you're saying about the, you know, post 9-11 hypermasculinity. I think that does very much tie in with what I was talking about in my um, attraction to Green Day mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. making something about this aesthetic political, right? Yeah. In that I didn't know quite what was going on and I didn't have a way to express it or a way to define it or a way to understand it even but there was something going on with culture and with this idea of a status quo and with this idea of hyper aggression and war waging and militaristic might that felt like it i like it needed to be opposed and and between the Avril Lavigne aesthetic and the sort of like anti George Bush punk message that was kind of ended up being married in bands like green day and that, that kind of pop punk forefront of, you know, very watered down anarchism. Yeah, Um, for sure. And that was part of what made it accessible. Right. To an 11 year old, you know, public and to, yeah, people. Yeah. Um, under the age of 18, I guess, but also yeah, to kids. Yeah. Just kind of that, that like, the like whole fuck the man thing without knowing what the man is, but knowing that something about that is important and something about that is attractive and, and necessary when you feel at odds with the world. And like you said, how you don't really examine or analyze the cultural context around the art, but it feels like you were feeling that internally anyway. Yeah. 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 Just, the need to kick against something. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah some totally. kind of oppression or right. whatever. You- right. I don't know. And I, I felt probably a lot of people feel this way about places that they grew up. And maybe it was just because I was very sheltered from a lot of things. But the the cultural context of, of things during that time often get lost on me because I feel like where I was was, like, immune to culture <laughs> in a weird fucked I up way. Yeah. Like, there... It, it was like, there's a, it, like, it's just retirement communities and suburban sprawl, which is weird even calling it suburban because there's no urban for it to be sub of. It's just yeah. houses and orchards and agriculture and old people. <laughs> yeah. And it's very, it's pretty isolated from kind of the, the tidal pole that someone might feel living closer to a city or in a city or in any place where there's access to, you know, nightlife and art Mm -hmm. that's, you know, less than four hours away. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in, in Acton, which is between Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. So it's a, it's a suburb, but it's like a very high pressure, like the schooling is the reason why my parents moved there. Because they wanted to put their kids in good schools. And 
it's all it's good and all like ranked high for good curriculums and stuff mm-hmm. but it's also very competitive so competitive that like yeah we had a like two kids in my graduating class committed suicide within one month of each other oh god yeah it was rough yeah yeah i i mean i similar because like the catholic school that i went to was um it was Catholic, technically, but mostly, like, the public schooling in Oregon at the time probably still was, like, really horrid and, like, getting actively worse. We had mandatory religion classes because it was a Catholic school, and, mm-hmm. like, I basically went to the headmaster and I was like, listen, I'm an atheist. I don't want to take these religion classes. And he was like, all right, you're a good student, so we'll just, I'll have you read a philosophy book every quarter, and we'll get together and talk about it. And that was, like... My, that was my fucking grade was, was that is like, mm-hmm. I just was able to be in people's good graces enough to scheme my way into avoiding right. the things that I really did not want to do. Yeah. And yeah, that, I feel like that's also like a really heavy, like speaking of religion, Gerard Way loves play, playing around with Joan of Arc themes as well. Like I feel like, especially on Black Parade. Right. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that's, that's utilized a lot in in heavier music in general. Like just yeah. this sort of like the references to because because religion religion is so grandiose, right? And it yeah. is so dramatic and, and very so violent. Compelling. Yes, extremely violent. So violent, and it's very romantic, right? Too. Yes. Like so, there's all these elements to to religion that are like just I think people of that you know, affiliation, love gravitating towards like the, the sort of religion and, and the, and, and I, and I still see it. It's interesting, like seeing that manifest in, in queer culture mm-hmm. as well. Oh yeah. Just the, the kind of, I mean, cause religion is campy also, as fuck. Like Catholicism yeah. is fucking campy as hell. It's like the outfits and the different colors for the different seasons and like the sashes and like the singing and it's super campy. And yeah, it comes out of tradition where that was just how people dressed, I guess, but it's, it's carried on into a very theatrical way. And yeah. it's also, I mean, I think about this a lot in regards to, in regards to weddings in particular, in that the average person, and this is my, I mean, weddings are stupid and the wedding industry is fucking bullshit and everything's horrible around it. But I do, I have a little bit of sympathy, I think, because I've, thought about it in a different way at a certain point, which is that as a musician, I get to get on stage literally a hundred times a year. I get to have people applaud for me all the time, right? Which very lucky to get to do that, but it's just baked in to my life, right? Mm-hmm. For most people, like getting married is the only time that they get to get up in front of people and have them applaud and have them cheer, which is mm-hmm. Crazy. And like, that's why people go so ape shit over their fucking weddings is because that's their only chance that they ever have to like get on a stage and do something. Right. And I feel like religion is very similar in that. Like yes. if you participate, you're performing in religious activities, you're performing. And like, I feel yeah. like, you know, being a priest or a preacher or a rabbi or whatever must feel you like 
you get to scratch that performance itch of it being a spectacle, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that those things go hand in hand in regards to musicians and performers borrowing mm-hmm. from the spectacle of religion and incorporating it yeah. into their works. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know who Ron Atty is? No. He's a performance artist who's associated with body art and extreme performance okay, artists, yeah. but his work explores the relationships between desire, queerness, and trauma. And so okay. he'll do a lot of self-flagellating shit. Like, he'll yeah, cut yeah. himself, like, and... But, yeah, it, and... But... That in particular he, is just, like, yeah. such a fucking... Just a total collision of, like, horny, repressed, mm-hmm. gay, Christian bullshit. Yeah. Like, it is just, like, the, yeah, the, the self-flagellation is... It's just like, it's too on the nose. It's like, you can't yeah. write this shit. You can't make this shit up. It's mm-hmm. like, they're whipping themselves because they're horny. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they are. Okay, all right. <laughs> like, like you're thinking sinful thoughts, and so you're going to, like, spank yourself a little bit. Oh, yeah, okay, that'll help. Yeah. That'll help. Yeah. Okay, cool. You do, you do that. Yeah. Do that. If we could move into, like, the political aspect of a lot of this stuff, too. Yeah, we've been um, going all over the place. I'm so sorry. So <laughs> we're talking like... about religion and horniness, yeah. Yeah. Um, but when something, when I re-examined a lot of this stuff that the band did, mm-hmm. I found that a lot of it um, really astounded me just because of how hard they pushed to get across the message that, like, any of this inherently violent or um, bigoted or anti-queer asset of the status quo that we might be associated with, mm-hmm. we don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're yeah. gonna and we're gonna tell you how much we don't like it until you get it. But in the documentary, Gerard was talking about how they were um, on a doing. They were on a bill with another band, mm-hmm. and this other band. They found out that this other band had been coercing some underage girls to flash them Gross. in order to get a backstage pass. So they got up on stage, and Gerard. Um, outright said, any girls who are in the audience, if any of these shitty ass rock dudes ask you to show them your tits for a backstage pass, I want you to spit right in their fucking face and yeah. shout, fuck you. And I remember watching that and being like, oh, I will do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's like, that is really important and crucial. There's, it, it's sort of, I don't know. I, I have like a very... I have no idea what this is like. I really don't. I don't know what it's like to make music and know that your fan base is underage girls. I don't know what that's like. And I don't know how much of that attitude and that um, angle and that like sort of like prioritization of those people has to do with who's paying your bills versus how you actually feel about it. Um, or just maybe that's just, you just know that that's a majority of your audience and you just like want the majority of people to like feel good and safe, you know, because if you're, I, especially if somebody mostly plays like, yeah, shows that even aren't all ages, you know, I don't know. Um, it's a great, it's a great fucking demographic to be tapped into because that's kind of like, those are the tastemakers, right? Or the teenage mm-hmm. girls. Yeah. You know? Um, in a lot of ways, in a lot of really, really crucial, important cultural ways. 
But I don't know. I feel like I would feel very strange making art and knowing that that like somebody completely different than a different world that I live in would be consuming it. And I mean, obviously I can't place myself in that position and I don't know Gerard personally, so I can't confidently say what any of his intentions are, but Mm -hmm. I just want to read this quote that I noted down that he gave in an interview where he said, I identify with women and trans people a lot because I was a girl to a lot of people growing up. So Mm -hmm. when you are just raised in this environment where you might not identify as any sort of other or any sort of flavor of queer, but you understand what it's like to be treated as such. Right. Right. That you really take that to heart. A yeah. Lot. Yeah. yeah. And just, yeah, just being sympathetic to that experience mm-hmm. and also just being cognizant of the flexibility of gender yeah. and the arbitrary, ways that gender is enacted in culture mm-hmm. and realizing that it's bullshit, right? Because right. being misgendered is being misgendered, whether you're trans or not, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you, you can misgender anybody, right? Yeah. And if you're subjected to that sort of thing repeatedly, I do think it allows you to really question why we even do that shit and like yeah. why, or why it even matters, you know? Um, but yeah, I like... I don't know. I, I, it's interesting. I like looked at some, you had some references for like lyrics mm-hmm. that like potentially allude to queerness. One that I, that I really like is in, um, in cancer. Mm-hmm. He, for no reason, he really fucking wails on that line. Um, uh, but I will never marry. Know that I will never marry. And it's like a known thing that in it, you know, this is, I don't know what era this was during, but a certain era in England, when they wrote an obituary about a homosexual, it was a known sort of um, subtle way of saying that, but they, by saying he never married. Yeah. So that was, that was a way for them to say, like, this person was gay without saying that they're gay. And then mm-hmm. in, like, saying it without in saying cancer, it, yeah. he's saying, I will never marry. And it's like, he, like, fucking screams that line. And it doesn't rhyme with anything either. I'm just yeah. like, that is very aggressive. Um, and I know that, like, the context of this song is maybe a little dated. But, um, you know, what they do to... Yeah. Guys like, like us in prison. prison. In the middle of a gunfight. In the center of a restaurant. They say, come with your arms raised high. Well, they're never gonna get me. Um, just, just the fucking audacity to talk about kissing a man mm-hmm. in a song is so fucking great. And just like, and I also, I fucking love that song. I love that, that whole album is so good. Like, but it is, it's just, yeah, I don't know. Just something about like this, the marriage of, this darkness and aggression, but it's also so faggy. And <laughs> I like me being drawn to that, like a moth to flame definitely says a lot about the things I was trying to process yeah. as a kid, you know, something I think in particular as a trans masculine person, it totally checked this massive box of the Venn diagram of 
what I perceived as masculinity and what I perceived as femininity and like those two things coming together in a way that actually felt really comfortable in a way that a lot of other things did not. Yeah. Because there got to be this aggression. There were loud guitars and there were gnarly fucking drums and there was screaming and there was loudness and dirt and distortion, but there was also eyeliner yeah, and camp and drag and it allowed me to navigate this space in a way that like, I mean, it's not a coincidence that the person who I went to that show with when I saw them live also was on the introduced me to Rocky horror and Eddie Izzard and all of this, (laughs) all this queer stuff, you know, have you seen velvet goldmine? No. Eddie Izzard's in that. It's a film. It's basically David Bowie and Iggy Pop fan fiction. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Which is, I mean, probably true, honestly. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And this is one of the few bands that I don't listen to. And I'm just like, oh, this is cute. Kind of cringy that I liked this when I was 12. (laughs) Like, no, that shit still rips. I won't even turn on private session to listen to Three Cheers. I don't give a fuck. Like, yeah, you're going to see that I listen to Three Cheers. Yeah. It's it's a a great fucking album. It's a great album. And like... Totally stand by that. I definitely use some of, like, the Black Parade stuff a little much. And it's almost funny. It's almost like Bullets is almost a little cringy at points just because they didn't figure out their dynamic range yet. I yeah. feel like. Like, he's singing up here the whole fucking time. <laughs> he's going for it and he's wailing about, you know murder-suicide, and and it's good, and, like, and again, I love the musicality of that album, like, there's a lot of really awesome, especially, like, I I feel like MCR was really musically crucial to me, too, because without me even really realizing it, I was getting introduced into a lot more complex form of songwriting, chord structuring, rhythmic stuff. I mean, I was listening to pop-punk before that, and, like, I was getting those three chords, and they were great, and I loved it, but, um... I do think that that sort of led me by the hand, like the whole emo phase led me to stuff that was more complicated, like my whole prog rock phase and like getting into bands that were more sophisticated in how they were handling their musicality, which, you know, to me is very, very crucial in like the way that I approach music and approach songwriting. Um, And yeah, and I still like, I mean, Something about Three Cheers, though, I feel like just is this perfect marriage of they figure they still had the technicality, right? Mm -hmm. But they figured out their dynamic range, and they also had this like pop melodic sensibility. The fucking the fucking backing vocals, yeah, on Three Cheers are so good. There's so much back and forth between the lead and the backing vocals and the backing harmonies. And and I feel like you can hear that especially on Prison too, because that was Bert Bert from the Used is on yes. prison well, as well and their dynamic was yeah yeah that's also such a like tasty tidbit of queer you know yeah rumors is that like it's a song about like yeah. being gay and then like his like you know his little giggle is at the end and it's like very yeah, it's yeah. like <laughs> it's very homoerotic it like, is, i yeah. remember even being like a kid and being like oh well they made this song together and like it's kind of a song about being gay but then they yeah. also did it together so, like maybe like they're like the the Bowie and Iggy Pop. Yeah, I remember like watchable even watching them their dynamic in the documentary. I was like, there's like what's this clip of that lady going? This is definitely fruity. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 
Yeah. Like that's sort of like it's kind of ties into to the the queerness of it, but like something about that scene and something about like how feminine these men presented it was like i mean there were like literally men screaming at me about murdering women and i was like comfortable with it and i trusted it because of the way that they presented like it wasn't like there was never oh. any there was never any moment where i was like afraid cuz they of these didn't people. appear threatening right where it's right. like you know if i was like really into motorhead or something like i might have been like threatened yeah. by the concept of Lemmy right. as a person, you know, just because he's intimidating. And, and and there's just, it's interesting, again, it's like this weird marriage of aggression and softness where I got to have, like, loud guitars in my face about, like, death and murder and suicide and all this stuff and mm. still feel like I wanted to be in a room with that person. Yeah. You know, like, there's bands I listen to now where I'm like, I love this music. I love this band, but like, I am, t- I would be terrified to be in a room yeah. with this person. Um, somehow just, yeah, this, this softness was able to emerge from it. And I think it's cause they're singing about like these romantic things. Like, yeah, it's just that it's, it, it, so I don't know. I, I really feel like that there is such a big link between the massive romanticism of violence and of death and of love. Yeah. And like the like preteen brain in particular in regards yeah. to like how women are meant to perceive love and romance. And yeah. like it just it just checks all these fantasy boxes. And you've internalized all this poison. Right, and right. And and yeah, and not not all that processing is bad necessarily, yeah. but it's it it definitely like I was very into fantasy books when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. I was really into Lord of the Rings and I was reading all these fantasy novels and it was stuff that yeah, just like death and pain and suffering and brutality. Something about I think how women are raised and how girls are raised to be very passive and be very put together and sweet and approachable. Um, and, and also like non-emotional, you know, like very yeah. much like, don't like, don't throw a temper tantrum. Don't have a hissy fit. Like don't be a brat. Right. Yeah. All this, there's all this like internal emotional turmoil. And then like the romance, the romance that were sold on TV and then the romance that is offered to us through, like, gore and blood and violence yeah. just becomes our outlet for all of this repressed and compressed emotional stuff that isn't allowed to be externalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get to see, like, a sexy androgynous man sing it all to you. And yeah. it just it becomes attractive and important and somehow soothes just the combination of the darkness and the attraction and the softness just gets all tangled up in this weird thing. And then a lot of us end up gay. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. If we come to any conclusion, it's their fault that we're gay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, uh, it's definitely my fault. It's for sure my fault. I don't know. I'm a little anti... I feel like it's really easy to read 
into things that aren't there. I get kind of frustrated with queer people in general. And I get really frustrated when like people are like, Oh my God, Carly Rae is so gay. I'm like, there's other, there's just actual gay musicians you could be listening to. And like, I, I get, I get a little frustrated with the fetish, 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 fetishization, fetish, fetish, fetishization, fetishization of, <laughs> um, queer subtext uh-huh. over supporting queer artists who are actually making queer art right. for queer people and by queer people. And they're already not being prioritized, their voices, as yeah, it is. Like, exactly, but exactly. It, it would be one thing. It could, like, cause a, a major counter argument I hear a lot of people coming up with, especially queer people, is like, well, we can support both. And I'm just like, yeah, but who's, who are you talking about though? Yeah, who are you yelling about on Instagram right now? And why yeah. is it someone who definitely is not gay and, and also is a billionaire and, Sucks. <laughs> oh, you're talking about Taylor. Oh, oh I, I see. You're, sub- you're subtweeting Taylor. I hear you. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean the Gaylor line, rabbit you know. hole is kind of, con- it's, it's, I'm low key kind of convinced. I won't lie. But also, it's, like, it's all fun. You know, like, it's I don't fun, fault but, anybody yeah. for engaging with that. Um, I'm also a curmudgeon and I hate fun and I like <laughs> don't like stuff. So I definitely get a little more frustrated than. Maybe I should, but, um, and yeah, I'm, and also there's this whole thing that happens, especially with people who are in the public eye where this thing where they're signaling. Right. And like people pick up on it and they know people are going to pick up on it. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what your take on that is, but some people might find it like, okay, I get it. Like, whatever. They're just... <laughs> Shikosh, but- should we talk about Miley Cyrus's non-binary face? <laughs> 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 uh, like, to me, that's like the worst intersection of culture and queerness is like... Oh, Lord. The Miley Cyrus non-binary face. Just like... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and... Also, like, the fact that, like, if we could get into some of the stage gay antics that a lot of um, these yes, bands put totally, on, totally. if they had done that today, we would probably call it queer baiting. Unless you only refer to queer baiting as a fiction term, like, in fiction writing. But no, no. what, no, what I, I thought was noble a- about MCR doing it was that it was the response to a lot of the energy yeah. that they were facing on the road. And they were like, well, you know what? Here, if this is the energy you think is acceptable here, we're just going to put it right in front of your fucking faces. Like, yeah, totally, totally. And, the, the, and what was also really noble was the fact that once they noticed that people were sort of glomming onto it or getting into it, they stopped yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with, like, you know, what they do to guys like us, us in prison. It's like, yeah. even if, like, that as a concept is dated and feels weird and kind of gross... Just the fact that they were out there in a very hyper-masculine field, you know, singing about men kissing men. Like, that's... Yeah. That's something. And it's tricky, too, because I also... I have a pretty big radius as far as how I think cultural impact works. I don't think it's coincidental that, like, an artist like Lil Nas X was, you know, closeted before... 
he had a hit song. And then after that, he got to be super fucking faggy and do his whole thing around it. And it's awesome. And I love that. And like, I love that we, you couldn't do that five years ago. It just like, it just would not fucking fly. And the fact that we can have that now and the fact that there's people who can see that and have access to that and people who can have their fucking, can get mad about it. Right. And a lot of these things like have this ripple effect that I think is just as important as like the hyper aware, like very nuanced takes that we all have. And again, like, yeah, the, the, the sort of queerness inserting itself in there. It's like, we understand the nuance of two straight men kissing on stage is like bad and weird and not good. And like, we're not into that as like a queer baiting thing. And as a, capitalization or a use of homosexuality as a way to whatever we get it yeah but (laughs) i do think that outside of our very small queer circles those things have ripple effects and they have a bigger impact on your average person who might have to think about that or question that or decide that that music isn't for them because if they can't handle that and they should get the fuck out right and that's and that's i think it's very aggressive, right? Like that is a, that is a move of aggression. And that is like weaponizing homosexuality, which isn't for straight people to do. But I also am not necessarily opposed to at that time in that yeah. context being like, if this makes somebody uncomfortable and they yeah. fucking leave our show, awesome. We don't want that person here. You know, yeah. it's really effective. It is it very is. effective. And mm-hmm. The bigger effect is that a homophobe just left that show and maybe spared an actual queer person from having to endure something that yeah. bad. And I think similarly with, yeah, even if it is fake or queer baby or whatever, it's like, if you are at that show and you see two guys make out and you're like, well, I really like this band. Don't know what that was about, but okay. Yeah. All right. And maybe when that person sees two, an actual gay couple kissing, they won't feel as much of a way about it anymore yeah you know and i feel like a big aspect of the appeal for of the music to me was the mental health aspect for sure yeah i like i mean because there was like you know there's like the whole like to write love on her arms thing yeah i yeah i mean it's so weird i don't know it's it's sort of a weird catch-22 and that we need to have music where people talk about shooting themselves in the head in order to not shoot ourselves in the head yeah um i hope but then there's always going to be this moral panic around it totally totally. where adults are like these musicians are luring these kids into shooting themselves yeah and that's where the whole like to write love in her arms thing came out of is like being like okay we need to like have a response to yeah allegedly what this is doing and to be to be honest like you know i did like one of my early friends that was like into this music and like introduced me to like some of the like more sceny bands like mm-hmm. you know chiodos and escape the fate you know she did pretty serious self-harm and like i had a very scary experience with her in her dealing with that and like in a way that that really really stuck with me and i yeah. think that that's like it's hard because I think that's important. Like, I think it's important for us to be extreme and have these huge romantic concepts, especially as a kid. Like you're just told that your feelings are stupid and dumb and little because you're having your dumb little kid feelings. And 
you need something massive to encompass the way that you feel in a way that is dramatic because you don't have the resources or the tools to put any of that to words. And it's hard because I do think it is important to, to have these extremely dramatic renditions of romance and love and death. But obviously I don't, I don't disagree that it can actually lead people to towards trying to emulate yeah, those things. You know? Exactly. And that's another thing that's been directly addressed by the band. I think her name was Hannah Bond, the girl who killed herself, who was used as a scapegoat for all of the moral panic and yeah. that Daily Mail article where they called them a suicide cult and everything. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, so I'll paraphrase it, but um, Gerard Way was doing an interview and... Um, one of the things he said was, I saw a girl at one of our shows up front and she had these scars all up and down her arms. And it really, like, that really stuck with me because I was thinking, is this what she thinks she needs to do in order to be here? And, like, from that moment on, he would always address the audience directly. But, you know, there's also, yeah. like, people have been doing this for, you know, it's like, you know, um, there's a there's a line in, in one of, um, I can't remember what song it is, but there's some, there's some, there's some line that, that alludes to Romeo and Juliet. Juliet loves a beat and the lust it commands, drop the dagger and lather the blood on your hands, Romeo. That's like, yeah. you've been doing this fucking big romantic death thing for centuries. Yeah, forever. You know? We this love, isn't the first. Yeah, you know, like, who, like yeah, alluded to it. Yeah, exactly. It's like you know, I mean, like the Odyssey and the Iliad. It's like there's just like people dying for love, yeah. and people dying, and people killing their lovers, and their lovers killing them, and killing themselves. It's like it's just we've been doing this forever yeah. and ever and ever. If and, you want to take this music away from the kids, then you got to yeah. make the teachers stop assigning them these Greek tragedies. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I would say I would say like the whole like cutting thing was very was a weird very bizarre cultural thing. Mm-hmm. Um but like actual literal suicide, I would say is is very much kids are always going to commit suicide and it's always going to be tragic and it's always going to be blamed yeah. on something. But like that's that's an action that is not done by a person who's trying to be a part of a trend. That's an action done by someone who is very, very, very unwell. Yeah. Those, these can, these are pre-existing conditions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It exactly. doesn't just happen because, oh, I'm going to listen to a song and now, now I want to kill myself. Yeah, this is a good yeah idea. exactly. Like, exactly. So, yeah. For the most part, kids want to be alive and enjoy shit. You know, um, this, the suicide thing is, is, a lot, a lot more yeah. pointed and a lot more based on stuff that is inherent to mental health and inherent to the human condition and not based on a trend of, like, what's yeah. What I think is interesting about this whole era of just Hot Topic core is that it was also, like, MCR was really popular, but... Yeah. At the same time, 
if you liked them, that subjected you to being taunted and harassed by a lot of people. Which that that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But for me and my experience in the weird little environment that I grew mm-hmm. up in, it was it was like armor. Yeah. Like putting on eyeliner and wearing my studded belt and painting my nails black, like that was like I'm I'm different. I am tough. Um I'm I'm dark. I'm interesting. I am like I it, like it allowed yeah. me to and again, like I mean, yeah, like joking about it, like not like other girls bullshit which that stuff is is so silly and i subscribe i was like such a misogynist for so long and i love you for that by the way like just like (laughs) thinking it's your feeling like it's your armor because i wish i had that sort of relationship to it at the time because i was just like the opposite i was like how can i blend in as much as possible just to survive like yeah yeah and which was which didn't end up helping me or serving right whatsoever like i yeah but yeah. Yeah. Like I just, I don't know. I, I just like, I think a lot of this was like a manifestation of a lot of my gender issues came up in a way that I needed to present and feel very tough. Like, because that's, that's associated with masculinity and that's something that I was striving towards without really knowing the context in which I was striving towards it and in what way I needed it in my life. Just that it was something that I felt had to be present Otherwise, I felt very vulnerable and very weak and very open in ways that are associated with feminine, like, in ways that are associated with being feminine. But I think, for me, it was just a very deep gender dissatisfaction that Mm -hmm. was very unaddressed. Um, And, yeah, just, like, just the... The whole, again, like, going from Avril Lavigne to Green Day to MCR and beyond, that that darkness and that attitude and that sort of counter-cultural um, spice just felt... It, it it really it really did feel like a self protection. Like it yeah. felt like a mantra. It felt like something that I could sink into and sit with when when I was bullied and when I was harassed and when like I felt dysphoric, even though I didn't have the words for those yeah. things. You know, it it became something that I could know myself within, mm-hmm. like. This is cool. I like this. Nobody yeah. else I know likes this, but I like it. This is important to me. And I'm going to keep insulating myself yeah. with these feelings and with this aesthetic in order to feel protected from people who misunderstand me. Yeah. You know? And if people want to talk to me and get to know me, they can do that. Yeah. But like, this is what I'm going to put out into the world. And if people have a problem with this, then they have a problem with me. And mm-hmm. I'm not down with that. And this is how I'm going to protect myself and shield myself from those people is like, mm-hmm. if I can be a freak and if I can present as a freak, then people who don't like freaks won't fuck with me. Yeah. And I don't have to talk to them, yeah. you know? And I feel like for me in middle school, it felt very kismet that I had the, that stuff as well, just cause 
I remember when I would go home and listen to the Black Parade, that was the only time I felt like myself. Yeah. But also, I feel like what's really cool about the band's legacy is the fan base in general, just because the tight-knit community of it just has evolved as um, the modern world has evolved. Mm-hmm. And... It's gone from people writing fan fiction and, like, forming communities on message boards on LiveJournal and MySpace and stuff to, like, I don't know, talking about the band on Tumblr and making TikToks now. Like, right. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, like, you know, seeing Gerard Way on people's, like, Instagram Yeah. when people went to the show. Also, he... <laughs> God bless him. He looks like shit right now. Like, like people went to those shows and I'm like, <laughs> like looked at those videos and I was like, yo, y'all paid fucking a hundred dollars to see Gerard Way look like that. Like, damn, like he's, he's not doing well, but God bless him. I also know my, I have a friend who works in the comic book industry mm-hmm. and met him through comic book stuff and said that he's just like, a tiny person like he's like really short and he's just like this tiny little like elven little lad which is which is so sweet and so cool but um yeah like i I don't i guess what's been cool for me and watching the whatever community is around it evolve because again like i had like one or two friends that were into it when i fell off of it at like the age of like 14 or whatever it i never really reconnected with people who we're into them. I, I feel like, you know, as you, you know, the first, like, between the age of, like, 10 and 18, like, you're just grabbing onto new things and shedding old things. And, like, you, you like, you know, the shit, when you're 15, the shit that you liked when you were 13 is, like, so embarrassing. And, like, you don't yeah. want, you, like, want to, like, you want everyone to forget that you ever liked that stuff, you know? But coming back to it when I was, you know... 18 and like listening to the albums with a more sophisticated ear and appreciating the musicality of it. And then being an adult and just meeting all of these people that yeah. had such similar experiences with this band that I did that are now queer, like were sort of in the scene, but not really in the scene and, and liked the music, but didn't like, like, like this band, but didn't like that other band and was into this stuff or wasn't into that stuff and was bullied or was part of some crew of people that loved this music, you know, it's just, and, and we're all fine with talking about it and admitting it now. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, if that's just something that's particular to this scene and this culture, or if it's something that just comes with aging and that when everyone who was 12 in 2006, like, gets to the age of, you know, 30, and we're all like, you guys remember that shit? That shit was fucking cool. Or if it's just because this band and this community was so important to all of us, you know? I don't know. I don't know what it is. And they've done a very good job at at hitting this reunion thing, like, right at the right time. As, like, you know, people are wearing fucking low rise jeans again and we're all listening to my <laughs> yeah do you know anything around that and what spurred that because i I've, i know nothing about it i don't know why now i don't know what the circumstances are yeah um, that's a good question that catalyzed yeah. this reunion and this this tour series 
Yeah. So they tweeted about it. It says, in 2017, we got a room together. We got in a room together to see what would happen. You got a room together. Ooh. We got a room. Read, let's read between those lines, baby. To see what would happen. A couple more jam sessions in and 39 days of rehearsals later. Um, we're ready to show you what we've learned. See you soon. And the article goes on to say the band have mostly stayed silent since re- reforming. But it was revealed by a friend of the band that Gerard Way thought reforming now was a case of now or never. Um, yeah. And they brought Thursday on the road with them and yes. also to open with them, which feels very apt because I don't, without Thursday, we wouldn't have MCR. Like, we wouldn't have, like, the entire wave of, like, yeah. Um, yeah, post-hardcore that, bands. That's really interesting because yeah. when I feel like I asked, I feel like somebody who went to that show, actually, I actually feel like it was my roommate, like, I was like, oh, who, like, who else is playing? He's like, Thursday? And he was, like, really into that whole scene, and I was like, oh, Thursday, and he was like, I don't know who that, who that is, and I was like, I feel like some of the couple of people who, like, they don't. They don't, and like, I never was into them, but I was very aware of that name and aware of that presence as like, yeah, a big name, you know? Um, so I don't know. I mean, obviously, like, you know, music finds its way into people's lives in all sorts of weird ways, and yeah. sometimes the that stuff is lost, but you know, oftentimes I get into these conversations with people about that era of music, and they list 10 bands, and I know three of them because. A lot of shit just, just completely missing. And as someone yeah. who was like way into fucking Green Day and like all American rejects and like the other fucking like, you know, the other fucking pop punk turds <laughs> of the time that like now I look back and I'm just like, oh my god, like that was that was bad. Like that's a bad that's yeah. this is bad music. I'm I'm good on that. Like I don't need to listen to Move Along ever again in my life. <laughs> um. Three Days Grace, oh my god. I, that one was at least a little, I, those songs, like that song Pain, like I feel like that's good. Um, Chiodos is a really interesting one because they're very, very, um, like some of like the like piano work on Black Parade reminds me a lot of that very, it's like Chiodos is extremely orchestral. And, um, fun fact, I had tickets to go see them with, the boyfriend that I met at summer camp when I was 14 mm. and then he dumped me and then I didn't go to that show. I feel like that, that's like my like sort of lexicon of the bands that I was into around that time. Um, which thinking about it, it must have been a very, pretty brief time because, you know, I didn't discover MCR until I was, 12 and then by the time i was 14 that was like i was done with that Hmm. you know i was i was on to like minor threat and started getting into like like some 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 capital p punk stuff like Mm -hmm. that was actually punk um when you're young you have to shed everything that you liked 30 seconds ago because it's embarrassing and cringy that you liked it yeah you know um like it's just that this constant like reinventing of your tastes and your likes and 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 it's just you're just you know you're open to so much ridicule right if you don't shed that stuff immediately like as soon as the moment is over if you're still attached to it you're weird and whack and lame and like a nerd you know 
Um, which I was weird and whack and lame and a nerd, but I still did try still to am. Have, still, <laughs> yeah, I am. still am. Still am. Um, still tried to have like my friend. Oh my God. The, last night at Alphaville, I, I, I like, I play video games. I've always played video games. Mm-hmm. I love video games. I talk about it often, but for some reason, I guess Tyler never heard me talking about playing video games. And like, oh. I literally said, I was like, oh yeah, Sunday, like I was totally useless. I like. Went out way too hard Saturday night, or, uh, uh, whatever. Whatever the day of week it was. I was just talking about how I was having a lazy day, and I just, like, ordered Chinese food and played video games. And Tyler was like, wait, you play video games? (laughs) It is fucking little Cali boy jock fucking thing. And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh my god, you're such a nerd. You're a nerd. And I was like, like, you're the only person that would say that. God, I love him to death, but he's a, uh, he's a trip. <laughs> but I, yeah, yeah, yeah like I, we said earlier too, like, don't know the band personally, can like confidently yeah. say we know their intentions, but I've observed and absorbed all of what they've put into the art over the years. Yeah. And I feel like no matter what their intentions were, the reading I had of it at the time is, oh, who is this? Who is this person who gets it? You know, uh, that was like sort of the first taste of what of subversive, uh, like watered down subversive sort of art right. that I had access to as a kid. So, and even if it was watered down, they were very militant in their actions over the years. You could say whatever you want about the art or whatever, but, um, I feel like that's a big part of why I still have immense respect for these people. And also some of the art has aged a bit, but for the most part, it still fucking rips. Yeah, totally. Totally rips. And uh, I guess to conclude, do you, do you have any closing remarks? <laughs> My Mine is we're all gay and it's MCR's fault. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty much it. It is, it is really cool for me to have the context of you know, you talking about these interviews yeah. and things that I just n- never got into and never ventured into trying to figure out, like, what any of these people would say about any of these things. But that is very illuminating for me as someone who was affected by something that was maybe not by intense, but sort of by purposes, pretty queer. Um, a lot of, a lot of the things that I felt around it and what it did to me as a young person to illustrate gender and sexuality and desire and passion and romance and all these things that sort of coalesced into the prepubescent frenzy of emo music and all this shit. It is really cool to, as an adult, look back on it and know that there were actual key points at which they did address queerness and they did address bullying and they addressed the feeling of outsiderness and the feeling of not being included in the feeling of wanting to express something that raged against the status quo and against heteronormativity and against hypermasculinity. And it's so cool that I had no idea that that was their aim at all, ever at any point. 
but I still felt it. It still reached me as someone who didn't listen to interviews, as someone who didn't read the liner notes. It still reached me, and that's really cool in knowing that Yeah. I think young people are really good at picking up on a a vibe and an intention, even if it's not explicitly stated to them. Mm-hmm. And it's very encouraging to know that going forward, like, there's bands making music now that have intention, that even without explicitly saying that that's what they're going for, it's reaching somebody and it's affecting them. They might not know why, but it's changing them and it's affecting them and the message is being delivered. Absolutely. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And yeah, for doing thank this. you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy. And thank you again to Mem, not just for coming on the show, but also for buying my broke ass some beer and for the cat therapy. I really appreciated it. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com backslash a girl's two sound sense. That's girl with three R's and no I. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy.